So, if you were here last week, you know that we went through Revelation chapter 1. Um, verse 19 is sort of the key verse of chapter 1. It, Jesus tells John specifically, uh, write down the things that you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will be after these things, uh, which is the phrase meta tauta. So keep that phrase in mind, meta tauta. It will be there as we go through the book, and it will divide present to future. And this is the outline of Revelation, the things that you have seen, was chapter 1. John saw the vision of Jesus. We saw Jesus with his hair white, which was a symbol of purity. His feet that had the sandals of brass, and brass is a sign of judgment, just like the altar uh, that was in the tabernacle made of brass, where all the sacrifices went. Um, so that you could be ceremonially clean before you entered the Holy of Holies. Now, uh, we saw that vision of Christ, and now we are moving into the things which are, which is the seven churches. So this is really interesting, because we're in the, we're in the seven churches. John is writing letters directly scribing what Jesus is saying. And he's writing them to seven churches in Asia Minor, which happen to be the area geographically where John had done a lot of his later ministry. Um, in fact, he, it's, it's noted from scholars that he likely wrote his gospel in Ephesus. Uh, and again, church tradition brings us to uh, the understanding that John was eventually released from the island of Patmos and he went back to Ephesus. And I think that's where he wrote his gospel after he penned Revelation. And so, these seven churches, as we go through them, there are some things that you're going to want to know. Some things you're going to want to note. Jesus will him, give himself a title as he addresses each church. That title will be a reference to something he said about himself in chapter 1. It will also, the title that he gives himself to each church will have something to do with that church independently. So whether it's how he's going to react to them um, when they do or don't make a change, or it could have something to do with simply their circumstance or their name, uh, but we'll talk about that as we go through the churches. So Jesus' title is very important. Um, the other thing is these are real churches in real time when John was writing. So they will have local application to each individual church. But at the end of each letter, he also says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So all of the churches received this whole book with all of the seven letters. So even if you were in Laodicea, the church of Ephesus still had personal application for you. So there's a personal application that you're going to want to focus on for each church, see if that relates to you. There's a, a local application to the individual church at that time in history and a local application to us now um, in the churches that we serve in or go to. Um, we can sort of see, as we go through the different churches in Revelation, different aspects of things maybe that we could fix here or that we can go, man, Jesus likes us <laughs> as we go through these. Uh, so we'll take note of that. Uh, and then there's a global aspect to it, um, or prophetic, potentially. Uh, 
there's a lot of commentaries that talk about how the things which are might be not just referring to the specific seven churches of that time, but directly related to the church age as a whole and going through the, where the global church was at through time periods of history. And we'll touch on that a little bit. I might go in a little bit deeper as we get towards the final couple of churches uh, and some insight I have on that. But that part I don't worry about too much, especially in the earlier churches, because if we were in the first stage of the church age, then we wouldn't have really much to worry about. Um, So there we go. The first church is Ephesus. Uh, So let's dig in to chapter 2. Before we go into the verses, I want to give you some background on the city itself so that John was writing to. Okay, so Ephesus was not the capital of Asia Minor, but it was the largest city in you could even say maybe the most important city. So if you think of in terms of where we are, New York City is not the largest city, or is not the, not the capital of New York, but it is the largest city in New York, and it's really the most important. All of the political decisions, all the economic decisions tend to be leaned towards New York City because a lot of the market and trade and everything that happens is focused in New York City, very similar in Ephesus. It's a port city. It's the main city. All of the roads from Asia Minor go to Ephesus before they head to Rome. So it becomes the main trade outlet for this area. Now, it was also known as a free city because of their loyalty to the Roman government. They were given a status of what was a free city, which meant that they were self-governed and there was no Roman garrison in the city of Ephesus. So there was no, no Roman troops stationed there, uh, which would be helpful for the early church to not have to deal with Roman, Roman soldiers. Uh, so there's that. It was known for trade, but also uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world existed in the city of Ephesus. And this was the temple of Diana or Artemis, depending on whether the Roman or the Greek goddess. Um, that, that temple of Diana was also known as a sanctuary. Uh, so Ephesus was a sanctuary city for criminals running from breaking the law in Rome. If you could make it to the temple of Diana, you were given sanctuary, uh, and you were then safe from being arrested. So Ephesus was also a crime-ridden city um, because if you could make it to the temple, um, then you were free from harm, and then you could go about doing your business throughout the city of Ephesus um, without any punishment. Uh, It was known as the gateway to Asia because all roads from Rome to Asia Minor happened in Ephesus. Now, though it was a port city, Ephesus eventually died because It wasn't a port on the Mediterranean. It was a port on the river. Um, It was the Caister River, which deposited a bunch of silt. And so they had to continually work really, really hard to keep the port open because there was so much deposit in the river 
uh, that it would clog up them being able to get out to the sea. Eventually, they lost that battle, and the port got closed. And as that happened, the city of Ephesus pretty much died. But at one time, it was the most important. Uh, and then Ephesus just sort of faded away. It is the only city, uh, the only church, that was written to in the book of Revelation from Jesus' scribing and Paul. Um, so Paul actually also wrote to seven cities. He wrote more epistles than seven, but he wrote to seven cities. Jesus wrote to seven cities, or had John write to seven cities. And Ephesus is the only one with any crossover. And that's where chapter two starts. So I don't know what you're going to get out of that, but it's interesting. So chapter two. To the angel of the church of Ephesus, right. So first of all, the word angel can also just mean messenger. So there are some who think it might just be referencing the elders or the leaders or the pastors of these churches, um, or it could be specifically to the angel. But that's, I don't, I don't really care or have a preference, just letting you know. This could potentially be also talking directly to the leaders or messengers of the church. And for some of you, who are actually, pretty much all of you, are in some sort of ministry leadership, right? Um, so you could take this a little bit more personally in the fact that Jesus is talking to leadership of the churches. So to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, these things says, he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the mists of the seven golden lampstands. So the title Jesus gives himself is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So, the seven stars from chapter, this is a phrase from chapter one. The seven stars are the seven messengers. So either the seven angels or the seven messengers of the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So just note that for when we come up to what's gonna happen in, in Ephesus. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So there's a little bit of crossover in sort of the mission of this letter and kind of what Paul wrote um, in his admonishment to the book of, you know, the Ephesians in general, that they had good, solid doctrine. They tested people who were evil, they tested people who, who claimed to be apostles uh, or prophets and made sure that they were not speaking false, a false gospel, they weren't speaking a false truth. Um, so that's a positive. That's one of the good things about the church of Ephesus. He says this, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. So these, this is you know the other good parts of Ephesus, right? You're patient, you persevere, you've labored, you've worked hard for me, and you haven't become weary. So, members of Parkminster, take that to heart, right? I think you can all relate a little bit to that for yourselves. Nevertheless, I have this against you. So now we're getting into the bad. Not everything with Ephesus is all good. 
that you have left your first love. That's a tough pill to swallow. So says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So Jesus is saying, this church, they work hard for me. They have good, solid doctrine. They test people who come and speak. They test those who claim to be prophets or teachers or apostles. They make sure they don't accept evil in their midst. They, they've worked so hard. They haven't become weary. They continue to press on and persevere. But they don't love me like they used to. So I, I was thinking about this as, I, as I'm reading this, and I'm kind of preparing for tonight, and I'm thinking, what was it like the day I met Jesus? And so I, I was... I was in youth group. I remember I was, I was in youth group. We watched a, a video sermon. The sermon was about Romans 8.28. I never forgot that. I have no idea what else the guy said. But I remembered the verse, you know. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And I just, that was the first time I had ever heard the Bible before. I was like almost 16 years old. I had never heard scripture before. I didn't grow up in the church. And there it was. Scripture spoke to me, and I heard someone say, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And I just knew that I wanted that. I wanted to be called to God's purpose. I wanted to have something in my life that had meaning. And I wanted it to be for God, and I didn't know what that meant. And I was sitting there as the rest of the message went through, I memorized that verse. I never forgot it from that day forward. And after youth group, I went up to the youth pastor and I asked him, I said, this is what I heard. I want this. I don't know what to do. I don't even know what that means. And he just said, come pray with me. And we prayed together. And I, it just, there was something different. I, I, I understood truth. I could see the world a little bit more clearly. I remember going home, and I went home. I was like 15, almost 16 years old. I go home. I'm all excited. My whole world, my whole worldview has just been shattered and changed, and I'm super excited about it. And I get home, and I tell my parents that I got saved today. I met Jesus, and they said, you're late. And I said, no, you don't understand. Like, I know God now. I didn't know him before. I know God now. And they go, yeah, but you're late. And I thought to myself, this is what it's going to be like. I am so excited to have met Jesus, and this is the world's opposition. And it's here in my home. They did not care for one second that I had met God. Now, a lot has changed since that moment. Um, and they are happy. They're proud of me for what I do. They're proud that I went to college. They thought it was just a phase for a while. Um, and they were not happy about it. But I went to college without any help, and I got this job, and now they're like, oh, I guess it wasn't, uh, I guess you really do. This is real for you, huh? Uh, and they're proud, you know? I really went after it, and I got, I got what 
I believe God had for me. But that moment was such a, such a big letdown. I could have gone one of two ways, right? I could have let the world, or in this case my family, just make me dovetail into, seriously? Or I could press on and I decided to do that and I annoyed everybody for the next few years as I went through high school and I went through all those classes and, you know, biology, um, dealing with evolution and all of the scientific theories and I started to want to learn more and I started to get in, interested in apologetics and understanding what this Christian worldview is so I could fight back against my teachers and um, present alternative ideas to, to the, my fellow students uh, and I was a real frustration and a thorn in everybody's side um, because I just refused to give up on what I knew was true because God had touched me with his word. And so I would say for all of you, think back. What was it like when you first met Jesus? What was that moment like? What was that? What was your life like? What was that change? Is there a way to rekindle that? Uh, to give you a, maybe a more earthly example, my wife and I have been together. We'll have been married for six years this October. Um, we'll have been together for seven years this October. We got married on our one-year anniversary. Isn't that cute? It's my idea. Yeah. It seems romantic. It's also, it also seems like I have less to remember. But, as you know, Juliet's, Juliet's pregnant. And, uh, you know, that's not always easy. When, you know, someone who is a runner, a marathoner, and is small, is now growing a human, and uh, doesn't have the exact same figure of a, of a marathoner. Um, and coming to terms with that can be a little tough. And uh, as someone who tends to just say whatever I'm thinking, um, pretty bluntly, I can also be a deterrent for her own emotions, um, being on a positive track. But the other night, we were just having, we were having dinner, we were sitting down on the couch, and she just put her head on my shoulder, and, I, and it just, it reminded me of when we were dating. Maybe it's because I've been focusing on this, but it reminded me of when we were dating, and I just remember that electricity, the first time you met the person you love, the first time you touched their hand, the first time you kissed them, the first time they, you cuddled, you know, and that sort of feeling, that's how I felt. And I just let her know, like, I love it when you just lean on my shoulder. It just, it makes all the stress of my day go away. And I could see the physical change, like, in her face as she smiled, because she lit up knowing that, oh, that feeling is still there. And so that, for me, when she does that for me, that's what brings me back to the moment that we started dating, to the moment we got married. So what is it with Jesus? What is it with Jesus that we can do to rekindle that sort of first love relationship? And so that's the question we put out uh, as we focus on the church of Ephesus. And so, moving on, he says, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So this is another chalk one up in the wind column again for Ephesus. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So who are the Nicolaitans? 
To be honest with you, we don't know. But there's a couple of solid possibilities. So let me explain both of them and tell you which one I think it is. So the first possibility is there was a man named Nicholas of Antioch. And Nicholas of Antioch was actually a deacon uh, in Acts chapter 6. He was a deacon of the church who went apostate and started to not believe. And uh, he became with a real, he started to take his theology to a weird degree. Um, he started to preach grace to an unbiblical level, basically teaching you can do whatever you want, um, you have license to do anything, and God just forgives you no matter what. You don't have to, almost like you don't have to have a real relationship with him, you can just do whatever you want, you can give in to any sort of immorality you want to, because God just forgives. Um, this is actually coming back into popularity uh, in the last couple of decades as well. But that was Nicholas of Antioch. That's what he taught. And so there was a potential that the Nicolaitans were his followers off of his name, Nicholas of Antioch. The other option from scholars is that this might actually be something to do with the language. So this is based on two Greek words. Nico, which is or Nikeo, sorry, which is priesthood, and Laos, which is laity. So meaning that they instituted a priesthood over the laity as an extra layer to get to God. Um, which we know that that has happened in church history. It still goes on today. Um, this extra layer, which we don't need. Jesus in the first chapter calls all of his followers kings and priests. So everyone in this room is a king and a priest of Jesus if you have accepted him. Um, and so putting an extra layer or an extra step as if someone else is closer to God than you can be in the way. That doesn't make sense. There's only one mediator between man and God. That's Jesus. That's from one of the Thessalonian books. I don't remember which one. But anyway, those are the two possibilities. I think it's probably the former probably Nicholas of Antioch. Um, just in context, that's what it sounds like to me. Um, so there you go. They did not like those deeds. This means that Jesus really does care about doctrine. So he's not kidding when he tells Ephesus that they do a good job by caring about God's word, that they care about doctrine. Uh, this isn't, that's not a joke. That's really important to him. Just as much maybe just as much as the love that they had. But I will say, if you remember 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, it says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, as if to move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. So as much as we can know, as much as we can do for God, as much as the power of the Holy Spirit can, can come into us if we don't have love for others, it's nothing. And so, yes, there's a lot of good at the Church of Ephesus. There really is. But there's also some bad. And so he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. This takes us all the way back to Genesis. 
to the tree of life. So in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they they wanted to eat from the tree of life. They couldn't because God set up angels to protect them from ever going back into the garden. Why? Because if they ate from the tree of life, in that moment, they would have lived forever in their sin. They needed to be redeemed first. And so the rest of this book is about the ultimate redemption of earth, of us, of Israel, of all the believers, so that we can then eventually come back into contact with the tree of life, fully redeemed, not having to live in our sin. So let's recap. The title of Jesus, he who has the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So he holds the messengers in his hand and walks among the churches. But he warns them if they do not repent and go back to loving him the way that they did in the beginning, he would remove their lampstand. That's how the title fits in. Now, there's a lot of good. Good doctrine, they hated evil. They tested those who came against them, especially the Nicolaitans. They couldn't stand their gospel. They worked hard, they persevered. But the bad is, they didn't love him like they did in the beginning. And if you don't repent, he will remove your lampstand. And so the personal application is to repent, find a way to love Jesus like he did from the beginning, without losing the good, without losing the love of sound, solid teaching and doctrine, without losing the hard work and ethic and perseverance, without testing people who teach by looking into the scriptures. Hold on to that. That is the same as the local. That is what happened in Ephesus at the time. And that's how we test ourselves now in this church. And then the prophetic. So if if it is true that there is a prophetic timeline, then what is the church of Ephesus as the first church represent? It represents the apostolic church, the church that was set up by the apostles and then taken over by their disciples. They were a hardworking, doctrine-loving church. What can we base that on in terms of the prophetic timeline? Well, the apostles actually wrote a little handbook called the Didache for churches, and it was something that helped them test false teachers because they cared about doctrine. But did they love Jesus like they did in the beginning? So there we go. That's the church of Ephesus, and that's all we're going to get to today. Uh, We will move through the rest of chapter 2 and 3 as fast as we get to in the coming weeks. So let's close in prayer. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the opportunity to come and learn a little bit about you and about what you have for the church. God, help us to learn from the good of Ephesus and from the bad. Help us to take those lessons personally as well as as a church to make the change and be the church you want Parkminster to be. And God, we pray that you would bless this as we try to move forward and fulfill your word and your duties in Jesus' name.
Amen.